the winners at the end of this will be those who can turn what is essentially a pretty big concern right now into an opportunity, but really be able to take advantage of that. Saying that is one thing, actually being able to convince a client that, that you're offering some innovation that they should take and it might cost X, that's a whole other story, right? Sales never sleeps, but it's something you gotta be working on all the time to, to get them to the right spot. But I believe there is opportunity on their side. Strong companies, lasting partnerships, powerful events. Welcome to the Experience Builders Podcast. Chris, how is October treating you? It is the uh, it is the gift that keeps on giving right now, Khalil, and uh, I see. I say I say that happily, and I say that um, shaking my head, going, "Man, the pace of play is just relentless." So, well, you you our, knew it was going to be a busy October, didn't you? Yep. I think our whole industry was aware that October was just going to be uh, really off the hook busy, and it is. And um, after for us, I don't know how um, Dan and and some other companies felt, but we really did a after twelve or thirteen straight months of phenomenal activity. July and August was just a cliff dive for us. And we're grateful to catch our breath, but um, it was the more predictable slow time of the summer season in the business event space. So um, September really started to ramp up. September was busy for us with October projects. So this is the month we're delivering on all of that. So uh, yeah, super grateful for that. Yeah. Dan, was it like that for you? We did not have this big a drop off as we usually had. So it still continued on with some strength, uh, but nowhere near where we were at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's introduce Dan, Chris. I know that you are great at introductions. So let's uh, let's hear it from you. Who is Dan? Well, Why are I, we here? You know what? I've had, we've had a, d a discussion about the economy because it's just this 800 pound gorilla unpredictable grill, I might add. So um, we've been chasing this this topic for months to do a, a great discussion about it here at Experience Builders. Um, I knew Dan was the right guy that I wanted. So he and I spoke um, probably a month ago when we found an opening in his schedule. And, um, he's, he's not only a great friend, he's the right man for this topic. Dan Sarabin is the um, uh, CFO for one of the benchmark companies in our industry called Thirsty. Uh, he leads the finance group, and he's a key member of their um, strategy team. And, uh, you know, I, Dan and I met years ago when we both joined the board of the executive committee for EDPA. And I will say um, the thing, it was funny, all of the executive committee, he really the full 24-member board. Dan get up, get, got up one year and gave a presentation about the state of our finances. He ran the finance committee. And people were just blown away going, this guy is talking in language we all understand. It makes sense. It happened to be that we'd recovered from the Great Recession, and Dan was updating us on the progress of not only getting out of the hole, but building up a, 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 a cash reserve for the association, which he was instrumental in helping create the plan for that. And so you just go, oh, my God, I've never had so much fun in a financial meeting. And, you know, we became fast friends just because there's also a great a great person and personality there. So um, it was, I, I, again, I think one of the the things I've learned about Dan, clearly he has a teacher's heart and it, it comes, it, you can tell that by how he communicates. Um, by the way, I'm not the only one that thinks that for, is it almost a, two decades now, Dan? He's been, um, you know, guest lecturing and a guest speaker on, um, subjects like strategy, not just finance and economy, but really business strategy. So he's the right guy that understands finance and economics, but he's got the mm. business acumen of how to help uh, apply that that wisdom to not just large companies like Dursey, but I think small and mid-sized companies. So that said, uh, can I introduce my friend, Mr. Dan Sarah? Well, thank you, Chris. That was very, very generous and kind. I appreciate it. But uh, 
hopefully today we can talk about some of the hot button issues with the economy because it is affecting all of us and it's hitting us pretty hard. So, yeah, it absolutely is. Uh, I'm, I feel like there's so much that we get to learn from you today. I want to start maybe with what Chris just mentioned with where he heard you speak and just the state of the, the economy and where we are. Why don't you give us a kind of a high level overview of where you're seeing things in the landscape today? Sure. So one of our biggest concerns is what our customers are going to do by listening to the constant drumbeat of, is there going to be a recession? Is there not a recession? And we were very concerned that during this fall budgeting season for our customers, that they would react to what they're hearing and pull back on budgets. The worst that we've heard though, is, well, we're going to keep budgets flat. Now, we've been working hard to help them understand that a flat budget this year is actually a decreased budget and that the dollars that are going to be necessary for some of the expenses that we can't control are going to take dollars away from, they're, they're really getting their message out to their customer because it's going to be spent on things like material handling and, and floor space and other expenses that you know, won't necessarily impact their message to their customers as much as we hope. So, so far, we have not received a lot of, you know, large scale bad information from customers saying things are going to change. So we're, we're, we're happy about that, but a lot can change. We, we all know that advertising budgets get cut first when there's a downturn. So we all know that there's still some uncertainty with the economy and what might happen on the customer side. On the other side, certainly, we believe very strongly in there's going to be a continued pressure, on, upward pressure on costs, and it's going to affect all of us. And so whether there's a recession or not, we're all going to have to take some pretty specific actions to, do, to, to combat what I think is going to be more pressure on the cost side than maybe a downturn on the revenue side from a customer perspective. Bigger worry probably for me is if we do get into a more significant downturn at the beginning of this year, what it might do to the late 24 and 25 budgets instead of what we might see in 24. A lot of space has already been committed and customers are going to go to the show. They might pull back a little bit on some of the, some of what they're putting out there. But um, so far, keep your fingers crossed. We have not heard from customers uh, that there's going to be any kind of significant pullback. On upward pressure on costs, can you explain some of the factors that are really driving that up? Well, wage inflation is probably the biggest, right? You know, so we, we see constantly an upward pressure on wages. Now, it has tempered from where it was at the beginning, late last year and the beginning of this year. So as you go into 24, you're hopeful that you can keep wage inflation down, but it's still there. And um, I believe it's not a um, necessarily, the market's not necessarily in favor of the employee the way it was last year, that we finally have regained some control, specifically with a lot of the large employers beginning to lay off people and some of the tech firms laying off people, that there is some relief on that side. But there still is a fairly reasonable um, increase in energy costs that's going to affect transportation costs. There's still labor issues on the show floor. Chris is a great advocate for um, workforce and what we need to do from a workforce perspective. And I think we're going to see a big shakeout of a lot of people that were hired at the end of last year and the beginning of this year on show floor and other spaces that support the industry where they're not, they're, they're going to move on. They're going to make changes. And what could happen once, once, once that happens, do we get a lot of overtime? Do we get a lot of upward pressure on some of those costs? And finally, the folks that are um, supplying the industry and the general contractors and the show organizers, they, they've seen a fairly significant increase in their costs and that's being passed on uh, to us. So. To your, yeah. to your point, Dan. So I serve on, as you know, um, I'm the EDPA representative for the ECA, the Exhibition and Conferences Alliance. So I'm in those monthly calls with um, Hugh Jones, the CEO of, of Reed Exhibitions and, and a lot of the SISO Society of Independent Show Organizers. These are the guys that own the shows. And shocking, a month ago, I, was, I heard in our meeting, um, they've, they've got data that 53% of all the professionals that are now working in the business event space since pandemic build back and, and recovery began, 53% of, of those that workforce is brand new to, to, our, to this industry. And that's globally, right? So when you think about 
so you were either talking about um, what we call um, uh, developing contributors, which is, you know, our code name for, we don't want to say young people because like the world likes to you know, put everybody in that group, but people that are new to starting their business careers or seasoned professionals from other vertical markets that have joined this industry, more than half are brand new. And you go talk about potential for mistakes and missteps in an industry, Dan, that I know you know, you know, it reads one way on paper, but when you're actually in the heat of live events, lots of unknown variables, things that just happen, um, you know, you, um, you, so workforce is, it's not just attracting and bringing back more people, but we've got to put some meat on the bone, I think, about onboarding and training as well. So oh, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Chris, specifically on the training aspect. So with the amount of the new people, and you asked generally, what were some of the cost increases? There is a hidden cost that you might not say is a economic increase of one or two or three or four percent on some wage base, but it's the fact that there's a tremendous amount of inefficiency right now because of all these new people. So things that you used to count on to take two hours are taking four hours or things that you would hope that would have been done on regular time are being done on overtime. So in addition to what I'll call just simply cost inflation on the base cost, there is a tremendous tax might even be the right word, right? On us because of efficiencies and the lack thereof. And it, it exists everywhere. It's customers, it's us, it's on the show floor. Um, everywhere we're seeing historical norms that we used to rely upon being thrown out the window. And you can't necessarily go back and say, well, let's look at the last two years. Because the last two years, especially with the mix and the amount of production that was done, aren't really a good indicator. Plus, the show floor yeah, isn't nothing normal about that. Right. right. And so then yeah. you say, well, let me go back to like 17, 18, and 19. And then that becomes invalid when you start thinking about what the business model looked like at that time and how companies were operating very efficiently and people knew what they were doing yeah. and everyone knew what they had to do. And now all of a sudden you say, I can't look back at 17, 18, 19. I can't look at 20, 21. I can kind of use 22 a little bit, but it's a brave new world when it comes to how you look at projections for 24 and 25. Even though I feel like there's some stability coming from the end of what I'll call the COVID recovery, I think the COVID recovery is over and we're now into what would I more consider a norm, we just don't necessarily have a good history like we did in the past. When I started in this industry 20 some years ago, we could produce estimates and projections that were year over year over year were within three, four, five percent. And it really allowed you to do some significant good planning. You would you'd plan out a strategic initiative and it would work. Now you don't have that history. You've got a lot of new people, as Chris said. You've got to figure out how to train them and get them to the right spot without taxing all the people who have still been with you for 20 or 30 years. And it, it just has changed the way you have to look at everything you do. You you brought you brought up a great point earlier about um, I don't know that we're where we were in 2022 when runaway compensation was everywhere. But I do know um, I walked into my break room earlier to get a refill on coffee and we have our, you know, our employment required posters in there. And I I saw the one of the big ones that said, you know, you are guaranteed minimum wage of $7 and 25 cents an hour. And I go, this can't be, you know, let me go in and look at that. And it was updated. And so I, I got on my computer and the federal rate for unemployment, which by the way, every state's different is still $7 and 25 cents. Florida, I checked where I'm sitting today is $12 an hour, right? It's different by state, but I'll be honest, Dan, I mean, I'm not, anywhere near the size of Dersey, we're probably back at 25 full-time employees. There's not an hourly person in my organization that's making less than $25 an hour right now. And if you want quality people, that is the entry level for back of house or, you know, take the salary people and just figure out what the hourly equivalent is. And it's still the same. So, you know, we're talking about the economy and the impact it's having on our business. Um, you know, that's just, if it's not labor, it's, um, it's materials costs, right? If it's not materials costs, it's logistics. If it's not logistics, right? It's, there are, um, it's freight and transportation. If you're, a, if you're a, 
brand side client like you work with, it's the cost of show services of any and all of those things and then some. And I love, love, love your opening remark about um, if flat budget is really a decreased budget, when you factor in all those things I just said that cost more and make no mistake, Mr. Exhibitor, you know, you are not getting even close to what you had if that but those but the the dollar budget is still the same it just isn't going to get you the structure or the services that you really need and i imagine are you having to train staff dan to be more edu educators in that discussion with clients uh, absolutely and so we felt you had to be proactive in that communication so that clients went into the budgeting process knowing that because if they don't and you then try to explain it to them and say, well, we can get your message across, but only with a smaller, you know, smaller footprint or changing the materials or do something different. And it really won't be as effective that you needed to know that. But I do believe, Chris, there's opportunity here, right? So to the extent that this forces us to be innovative. So if a client comes and says, well, I am going to keep my budget flat and you go, well, you're going to lose another 10% to just the increased costs that might happen on show site, travel, transportation. Uh, I and D that's happening on the show floor, I think, and it's going to take from the creative side, or it's going to take. What can we do to be innovative or creative in that way? So I do believe in almost anything we talk about today. The flip side is going to be the winners at the end of this will be those who can turn what is essentially, and, and I agree with you, a pretty big concern right now into an opportunity, but really be able to take advantage of that. Saying that is one thing. Actually, being able to convince a client that that you're offering some innovation that they should take and it might cost X, that's a whole other story, right? Sales never sleeps, but um, yeah, it, right. it's, it's something you got to be working on all the time to, to get them to the right spot. But I believe there is opportunity in their side, Chris. Yeah, I think, I think for a lot of the small exhibit houses out there, increasing prices is always a very challenging psychological uh, endeavor because you're worried about losing the client. It's, you know, probably one of your most important clients that you don't want to lose it. So you don't want to increase the prices. But the reality is the people who do not change, who do not increase prices will probably fail. So in a practical level, Chris, I think you're probably having a lot of conversation with the clients. How is the response? Are they, do they see the merit of increasing prices and how are you handling that on the day to day? No, great, great question. Love this, love this subject. Um, so Last year, we sat down. Last year, I think, Dan, would you agree? That was really our first full recovery mm -hmm. year. Um, I mean, in some ways, the business, it was like drinking out of a fire hose. Just it came raging back. But um, we really sat down and audited what our, our pricing was in our main uh, product and service offering area. And we realized we had not updated pricing in some years, in some cases, on you know, by the way, we don't work directly with brand side exhibitors. My, I'm, we have kind of an interesting model. We only serve uh, exhibit houses and experiential agencies. So we don't work directly with the exhibitors. We serve, you know, we, we're a forward deployed sort of a rental build shop in Vegas and Orlando. And um, we, we've been sort of shrinking our way to success. In a few words, can we be more in service to fewer partners? So so my customers, when you ask Khalil, are, are those individuals. They understood last year a price adjustment because everybody felt the cost right. increases, right? And there was no pushback at all. In some cases, we were 15% higher. Labor, um, in some cases, more because we all understood that. I think what's interesting is, um, if, we're, if we're honest, we should be disciplined enough to be looking at that every year it's no longer about, we just got really lazy. And it's no longer about, hey, we need a price increase so we can make more money. We have to keep up with the, the rising costs of everything. I remember it was a couple, couple few years ago, she'd apply with Dan, right? We could get it for 25 or 26 bucks. If you negotiate, it's 55 right now if you buy it in bulk, right? And, you know, labor, it's the same. Um, you've got a driver shortage, a trailer shortage. And unpredictable gas and oil prices, which drives up transportation costs. The fact that there is a labor shortage, the general contractors we rely on are things like rigging, 
and electrical and other services, um, it is slower, um, less experienced. There's a lot of apprentice quality labor out there. So we're paying more because things take longer and limited time and material. So, you know, now will my partners, my clients, uh, how are they going to feel if this is a conversation I have to have every year? Which is, again, back to the subject of the economy, Dan. You know, we're looking for some predictability or some sign of leveling off. I mean, tell me if I'm, you know, I'm I'm speaking at the small and mid-sized business person level, but you and I play in the same sandbox. Is it the same that you're experiencing? Um, yes and no. But first, one last quick one last quick observation about the price increases. I agree, Chris. Our experience was identical. Last year, price increases were something that was a pretty easy discussion. Everyone was reading the same news stories. They were experiencing it for real. It wasn't difficult to go and say, here's why we need to increase prices. Some of what we've seen, though, is as there becomes a stability at our customers amongst their, their staff and their folks, is it's no longer... I just need you. What are you going to charge me? And I'm going to charge you X with a price increase. So now we're getting back to a little bit of, well, wait, I, 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 I could price check this in the marketplace or I could go out and do an RFP where pre-COVID you might have been getting here it is. Plus, I want you to know how you're going to reduce our cost 5% every year for the next three years. You don't get that part, but you are getting now finally some understanding at the customer side to be able to say like, we will listen about a price increase, but we're not as open as we were in the past when they really needed us. And we had capacity issues and were able to say, this is the price. If you want it, this is what it, this year it's a little bit different. Let me ask yeah. you, Dan, how many times are your account directors having to have the conversation with job changing and turnover? Are you, I mean, we're seeing that a lot out there. So might you, Finally, just set expectations and you get a sort of customer on the right page about costs and pricing. Whatever. And then a year later, do you have somebody new that you haven't had that conversation with? All over? Well, specifically with COVID, right? Because a lot of the a lot of our customers, marketing departments and, and event areas were devastated. They were they were reduced to very yeah. small staff and coming out of it. There was some um, ability on our part because th we were almost functioning as their staff in some cases. And so there was this ability to. Um, kind of get a good conversation, a good understanding, a good relationship as to what had to happen. But what we did see was someone who said, well, I'm, I'm not happy with you, but I'm going to go over to Chris. And some of Chris's customers going, well, I'm going to go over to Dan. And there wasn't a lot of shopping. It was just, I just had enough of Chris or I had enough of Dan. And there were these lateral moves. There wasn't necessarily any program improvement or any price improvement. Now, though, we're seeing a lot more stability where they're going like, well, I'm going to price, I'm going to go out and do an RFP. I'm going to go out and seek something new or different. And so there is stability on the customer side, but that stability is coming with a price because they're, they're, they're improving their ability to decide what it is they want from us and you and, and the, and the whole um, stack of people who are going to, you know, support a face-to-face -face exhibit or event. And so um, we are seeing a little bit of that. Can I ask you, Dan, is, are these new economic conditions or, or all the things we're talking about that are changing, does that have you looking for new types of customers or, or different type of work? So not necessarily, but, but here's how I'd phrase it. So you, you are correct that the economic uncertainty that we face now is causing a lot of problems. But I think you... And I would normally be looking, when we look externally, right, we're looking at economic conditions, political conditions, legal and regulatory. We're looking at all, you know, what, what historically has been this remote look at what's going on. And the economy's always been part of it. Do I need to borrow this year? Do I not need to borrow? Where are rates? So I do agree with you that there's a lot of uncertainty. And part of the problem that we see is that customers are getting now, in, in the past, there'd be conflicting information, but there'd be some reasonable amount of, of good information that they could get. Now with the speed at which, I'll use the word misinformation, get put out there or maybe slanted or information that someone's trying to, to make a point gets out in there and you're now having too much information and you're having to sort through it. So we look at it this way and say, yes, the economy is a big deal for us, but what we have to change 
is once we decide on the menu of initiatives, how we look at the evaluation of whether those are successful or not. Because in the past, pre-COVID, we would do things like say, we need to once a year look at the premises on which we set our strategies and see if the underlying assumptions are still valid. Now you almost have to do that on a six-month basis because of the way things are happening. So you can defend against the economic uncertainty, but you have to change, I believe, internally your strategic evaluation process. And there is, there, you know, there's things like special alert control. We'll say, if our strategy is dependent on these things, but this one most important thing happens, we have to immediately look at our strategy. Well, COVID certainly threw all that out the window, and now, now it's very hard. So there is this economic certainty. I read today, right before we got on, one person saying that they believe that there is not going to be a recession. It'll be very soft. Other people saying, why can't you read the tea leaves correctly? There is going to be a recession. And then if you look at the individual um, you know, indicators, it does indicate that there's probably going to be some softening of some sort. The question is just going to be how deep. And then a lot of it depends on what the consumer ends up doing because the level of consumer spending in the economy is so great. And when you're reading newspaper articles, one, one newspaper article says there's not going to be a recession. One newspaper article says there's going to be a recession. At the end of the day, it, it's going to be very confusing for people to make headway on information that in the past wasn't that difficult to get good information to interpret. The, the second thing is we're all going to have to change the speed at which we react, right? Because this information is coming so fast and social media allows it to spread so fast that... You internally in our organizations, whether we say it's a, a you know it's a semi-annual look now or it's going to be an annual look with monthly recheck, all of that has to be thrown out the window and you have to act much more quick. So part of my answer to your question is I do think this economy is going to enter into some kind of a downtrend. You just can't decide on how deep it's going to be, right? And then what does that mean for us in our industry? I tell you, I, I don't really care as long as I've got the proper evaluation controls in place. And I would look at it three ways, right? The, the one is, you know, what is our what does our monthly operations look like? Pretty standard look at what you and I might normally look at. But then we say, are we executing? That might be something that maybe we only did quarterly in the past. You might have to move that up to something monthly. And then you say, is my strategy the right strategy? In other words, are those underlying assumptions, premises that I base my strategy on still valid. Don't We used to say, do that annually. Forget it. You got to do that in six months from now. And then maybe next year in the spring, you say, okay, now I can push it to the end of 24, depending on what's happening. I just believe that the speed at which we have to respond to some of these has changed significantly from the past. The concept is still there. We still need to look at it and think about it, just the speed. Yeah. I got to be honest, I feel so much better talking to you, even in with it, because you're 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 validating a lot of the things I'm doing and feeling, and you know, as you know, as a small business owner and, and really any business leader, you know, you you go through work in this environment and you and you start thinking, am I just because I'm paranoid? Doesn't mean they're not out to get me, right? You just you start you start thinking, am I overthinking this? And what I'm hearing from you is more, you know, better analytics, more frequent analytics. Um, my head is on swivel all the time about capturing good data and information. And then um, I believe in our plan and our model and what we're doing, but there are so many things that can knock, knock it off course. I, I'm a, I know you know the names Charlie Munger and Warren yeah. Buffett, right? On the Berkshire Hathaway boys. It was Charlie who said, um, he, you know, he said earlier this year, he said, we really are, are stumbling through a zombie economy right now. And I think that's going to probably continue into 2024. And I don't know if he was saying until there's a U.S. election and that's decided because it doesn't look any clearer, you know, when you look at that. But what I mean is, would you agree with that? What do, what do you see that meaning? Is it just just so much uncertainty? You're just kind of, Whoa. you know, we're. We're all blindly going through. Well, there, there's always there's always been ambiguity, right? But I do I agree with you. I agree with Charlie, and th that I, I don't know if I'd say it's quite the zombie, but I agree that there's a lot of ambiguity, right? And our tolerance for that ambiguity is going to be as leaders how we respond to some of this stuff. So I, it's very exciting yeah. to hear you say, "I believe in my plan." I believe in my plan. So then, all you really need to do is say, 
forget the uncertainty. I just need to make sure that as I start putting my plan into action, and as I'm measuring results, maybe I need to change the frequency in which I'm looking at those. Specifically, do I have the right strategy? And, do, and am I executing properly? Move those up, and I think you'll do great. Because that, that uncertainty has never been a problem for a leader like you. Because if your tolerance for ambiguity was any worse, you wouldn't be where you're at. So I think you can see through this words like zombie economy and other stuff and say, I don't care as long as I know what my plan B is if the strategy is not working. So if you can accurately get excited about your plan and understand as to what success looks like in that plan, and if you're not reading it, if you're not meeting that, I mean, what you need to do next, then who? don't worry about the uncertainty. For, that uncertainty shouldn't bother you. There's no problems. There's only opportunities. <laughs> I think I should remind you that Blockbuster Video believed in their plan and their model <laughs> too, Dan. So You're not blockbuster you know, video. I'm, I thank you. I'm not blockbuster video, but yeah. the point is, man, the industry which is moving so fast, right? It can, the ground can shift from under any of us. Which, to your point, I think is why we're constantly and more frequently checking our yes, our analytics. And, and, when, and when you refer to blockbuster video, I do understand the comment you make, but I don't think our industry is going that way. There would not be the level of outside investment by a lot of new types of players in our industry if they didn't believe in face-to-face -face and events having a pretty strong future. And that's why I, 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 it's exciting to hear you say I believe in my plan because that plan should be taking advantage of some of that opportunity. There's still a shakeout, in my opinion, of firms in the industry trying to figure out where their space is and whether they want to be in this. So... You were, one of the things you said to, that really struck me, you said to me in 2018, 2019, you said, go on your floor, Dan, go on your shop floor and look at the average age of the people out on that shop floor. And at the time, we did not have this concern about the COVID workforce. You were just talking in general because the industry was maturing to a spot where at some point we were going to lose a big amount of our people who've been with the industry for 30, 40 years and all that experience is going to leave. And you're right. I went out on the floor and the average age was like 55. Right. And so I looked out, oh boy, you know, things, th this doesn't look, you know, this is, this is a problem. And then COVID hit and kind of threw it out the window because they all left anyway. Right. But that, that workforce development that you talked about and the recovery was what hit a lot of firms hard. And for the ones that made it through, there's opportunity to either innovate in the way they approach their clients or to maybe partner, pick up, merge, buy, whatever, from some of these other firms that have decided I can't navigate the field like Crew can or Dursey can. And so I, I still believe that part of your plan needs to be flexible enough that when opportunity like that arises, you can take advantage of it. Well, yeah. I, there's two things I want to shift the discussion to, but Khalil, before I do that, anything you're hearing or observations you want to make or add as we're talking here, because this is well, I think it's obvious that there's, you know, there's levels to everything. And just from hearing the way that Dan is talking, his approach, his mindset, you can tell that he's on a different level in terms of strategy and planning. And I think that our listeners would greatly benefit from just understanding your approach in general, as it comes to strategy and planning, what process do you go through and what are the steps that you take to put it in a good plan for your company, your team to then go and execute? So literally you've got a plan. Right. I, I mean, it can be scalable, but if you're not thinking about next year and you're not looking at what initiatives you're doing, I think I, that to me, that's a mistake. And so I would go through a process to at least document what you think your initiatives are going to be and then go and reevaluate or, or reconfirm whatever you want, the premises on which you think those are going to be successful. I'd look externally and I would do what Chris was talking about. He's looking at the political situation, the economic, the legal, the regulatory, all of that kind of that, that situation to make sure you still feel comfortable. I would then look industry wide and look at things like who my competitors are and how they compete. I would look at who my customers are and what their expectations are. I look at my suppliers. I would simply do that kind of look. And if you've never done that before, there's plenty of resources just on the Internet. You can do it yourself. But just to simply do the, the physical exercise, we, we've been part of and seen a lot of organizations that never sat down, but their leader would do that in their head. I'm just suggesting you got to throw in, you got to document. 
because you want to now, what Chris and I were talking about, the speed at which you got to look and reevaluate is way different. And so that needs to be somewhat documented. I would then say, what does success look like? How do I know I'm going to reach my goals, right? And what are my goals? Set those objectives that you need to, to meet those goals. Now you know how it looks externally. Make some assessment of what's happening inside and then decide on a strategy and, and, and rock and roll. Just remember that strategies are implemented through projects. And so getting the right people on the right projects to make it happen is going to be an important part of this. And it's really, to me, that translation of your strategies into those specific actions is more where people struggle than it is thinking about it. There's there's so many people, Chris and I could take you to one of our meetings. You'd meet some of the most incredible visionaries ever existed, right? But the ability then to somehow get people to do what you need them to do to put this into action, that's the key. And if, if there's one thing for the smaller companies, it's making sure to take what those initiatives are and decide who needs to do what, and then make that happen. And without that, then it's just some ideas on a piece of paper. By the way, you know, Dan, if you look up the word visionary in the dictionary, the definition says crappy with details, right? So you and I both, so you're the guy the visionary comes to to fill in the blanks. Can I ask you this? So you speak to a lot of groups. You're lecturing. I mean, so when you walk into University of Wisconsin and you're talking to a, group, to a class or group, are they all students not in the workforce or do you have any young entrepreneurs or anybody that has business sort of there or and even when you're speaking to our group by the way khalil shameless plug for dan one of the most popular sessions at edpa access dan sarabin does a workshop called management issues forum and it's a lot of the small and mid-sized business owners that get to come in and he drives a conversation not unlike this so my you know one of the great things about becoming a dursey team that built that or is Arnowski or, you know, or an impact XM. What do you say, Dan, to that 5 million and under person or the, or the, you know, the, 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 the $10 million to $20 million business that um, a few, you know, some months back we did an episode called how to avoid the death spiral, right? And the death spiral being, I have to go get new deposits for tomorrow's projects to pay the bills today or even clean up yesterday's projects because you're that lack of capital reserves or inability to access lend, lender money is you literally are doing it out of month to month cash flow. So that was one of my segue questions is what's your read on accessing capital right now? And would you in this economic environment, would you at 8%? And what do you do if you're those smaller, mid-sized companies that maybe don't have the financial bandwidth to do the longer term? Well, it, to me, it all depends on the opportunity you're borrowing against. So I have no problem borrowing at 8% if the opportunity is that great, because I would be looking at it as what is my return on this? It better be more than 8%, right? And my weighted average across the capital without getting into all the finance stuff, you know, it's a certain level. Right, right, right. But I, I have no fear of borrowing money right now. And I don't have any issue. Now, if it's if it's a great enough amount, I'd probably hedge it and fix some of it and float some of it. But I think I think no one should be afraid right now to borrow money. What I think you should be afraid of is to borrow money for a bad plan or borrow money for something that you've always done in the past. And it's like, well, I'm, you know, I need to, to, to get my line of credit and borrow money. I'm going to spend it on X, Y, or Z. No, specifically, depending on some real estate too, you got to be really careful right now, right? So yes. my advice is don't be afraid to borrow and, and don't stop investing. This is not the time. One of the things you talked about was the different levels of companies. And I teach almost exclusively now at the executive level. So it's always experienced leaders who are, looking to get to that final level, right? So it's it's someone who nice. might be just short of the CEO or the president. They just want to get over that top. But what we see with a lot of the really small organizations is it's made up of doers. It was someone who had some success doing something and they're really good at doing it. But can they get to the next level? They have to become that visionary. So then we see some people flip and they can start to say, well, this is what I see and this is what I want to do, but they lose sight of getting it done. And so almost exclusively now, the translation of these initiatives and their strategies into action is where most people want help or where, they're, or where they really need the most help. 
There's a lot of articles that are written about whether someone can be both a visionary and a executor. And if you look at some of the most successful people, they can be both. But it's not untrue that there are some people who are really good at visioning what the future look like, but they're not very good at getting it done. And there's some people who are really good at getting it done, but they can't, they struggle with maybe being innovative and borrowing money when it seems like it's scary and it should be. Um, the most successful people can do both, obviously, but mostly in that middle group, it's the translation of it into action. And one of the actions they should not be afraid of doing right now is borrowing money. The middle-sized companies and their access to capital will be trouble, right? There has been a tightening of yeah. credit. And so we are seeing a lot of requests for personal guarantees and other items where, you know, someone might normally have been a little bit leery. If it's the right opportunity, do it. There should be no reason why you don't borrow, why you don't make that personal guarantee unless you don't believe in yourself. And so a guy like Chris, who starts his out by saying, I believe in my plan, I would not be shy at advising you if there's a, if there's a need for capital and, and you adequately assessed the opportunity and you think you can take advantage of it, borrow the money. If you don't think you can take advantage of it, don't borrow the money. If you don't think you can translate or, or get what you want from this and really make it happen, don't do it because then, yeah. then you're gonna you're gonna end up paying the piper at the end. I love I love how decisive you say that. And by the way, the right caveats, right? But not for a bad plan, right? So you really and and hopefully there's any any small business owners that are listening to this, right? You've got a you know a, a group of advisors or a board or or people that you trust that are going to help you sort of test that. Um, yeah, this is this is just great stuff, Dan. So, in our industry, right, and, and I've been I've been at it for you know three and a half decades. One of the ways business owners always sort of created wealth is um, at some point you buy a building, right, and and you um, and you pay yourself rent. And um, I did that in '06. Uh, it was fantastic. I watched the first, you know. 25,000 square foot building I bought just jump a million dollars in a year. And then the Great Recession hit. And it, because I got a really good deal on the building, I didn't get killed like many others. But I had hopes of this great accelerator. And then it went back for the next seven or eight years of you know, real estate grew at five or six percent. It wasn't this huge. It was, it was, I held, it wasn't a flip building for me. So it was, a, it was still a good investment. But, um, Rates were lower than they are right now. So I would ask, and again, we used a good SBA 504 program. And we thought we made all the right decisions. But I, is this a market right now? Because the real commercial real estate's kind of squirrely. How do you, is, is that something you still think right now for a, a fledgling business owner who wants to go to the next level? Might be a good thing? Or what would you caution them? To I wouldn't caution them if they're using the building as part of the business. So separate this out from the folks who are making more speculative real estate investments. I can't comment on that, right? Yeah. But I would not be shy right now if you said, I'm I'm um, of an age where I plan to be in this business for another 20 years. And that business is going to fund the mortgage payments, which will ultimately fund the loan. I Buy it. Why would you not, right? I still think, because you're going to get past what I think. Now, now, I have heard from some economists that they believe 2030 or so will be the Great Depression, right? So I, and I've heard words like that. And I don't know yet whether that's true or not, but I believe you could buy a building now and, and get the business set. If you really think that's going to happen, sell it, sell the business in the building in like 28, right? 29, right before the Great Depression. But otherwise, I would not be shy at all for buying real estate that is going to be connected to a long-term business. Most Too many people are thinking way too short-term in some of this stuff. And so if we've got people in our industry that are small businesses, 2 million to 8 million, 8 million to 16 million in revenue, don't think short term. You're not going to flip this business now. If they are, and that that's a whole different story, then I would take different strategies. I might not buy the I might not buy the building. I might not buy the real estate because I need to to stay lean. I need to show a certain cash flow and EBITDA in order to get a good multiple. But it, it, frankly, if you're talking about a business who owner is thinking long term, buy the building. Interesting. So, um, and I want to get one one other left field question in because. I think it's relevant in this economic environment, Dan, do you find pursuit of global event opportunities, international event opportunity um, projects, um, 
attractive to look at, not attractive to look at? Do you not decide that? You go wherever the, 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 your, your client base wants you to go. How, how do you, you know, is it, do you look at international opportunities as I'm bullish on it, I'm hands off on it, or if our clients need us to be there, we'll figure it out. I think you either need Which to, I think you either need to consider global opportunities on a regular basis. And whether you pick certain countries or not, I, th that's kind of up to your skill set or what you believe you can do. Yeah. But if you think you're going to stay just domestically, find a niche, do something different. Don't expect to compete long term with other companies yeah. in the U.S. if you're just going to be U.S. because it's it's it, you're, it's not going to end well in that regard. So think globally. If you stay in the U.S., find a niche. Great advice. I, by the way, that's what we've chosen to really. You know, somebody said the other day, you're really shrinking your way to success. We're more profitable and we're having more fun being more in service to fewer customers. We had the best year we ever had last year and we did business with 48 customers. Versus five years ago, we have 381 customers and we were burning our people out and we Man. were, um, we just, I thought more revenue was the key to the pathway to Shangri-La, right? We'll, we'll just, that that's how, It'll it'll solve all our problems and happiness. And we just learned that, that that's not the right way to go. So, um, yeah, it, it long way to bring us back to the beginning here on on the economy. I think um, so. As happy as I've been with the model I've chosen and the plan that we have and the playbook that we've written, um, the one thing I keep shaking my head at is the economy. Which, by the way, what we just it's touched on. It's it's affected our labor. It's affected our materials costs. It's affected the lending market. It's affecting our, our, our customers' buying patterns. So that's why I thought this was such a great conversation because it's not just, hey, what are interest rates and where's the dollar at, right? This is really, this is this thing. I, I don't, maybe the competitor is not the right word, Khalil, but it, it's, um, it's now the biggest variable with tentacles that reach into all these areas to Dan's point. I'm, I'm checking it. Some cases monthly, my plan, but certainly every quarter and every six months, deep dive looks. Yeah. Our I agree completely with you that there's a lot of uncertainty with it and that it is a big factor in what we set. But there's there's many answers, or there's many ways to get to the same answer, but there's a better or a best answer. And your ability to look at all these tentacles as you phrase them and incorporate them into your plan is what's going to make you more successful. And so I do agree that Smaller companies that have maybe less resources could struggle a little bit. And the answer solely is, Chris has made you aware that the economy is a big issue. Spend time thinking about it. But understand, the better you can analyze it, the better information you can get, the better you can understand what it could mean to you, the better your answer is going to be. Yeah. You're like, Dan, talking to Dan's like a CBD gummy. Right. We, we need to get you your own. We need to get you your own podcast in like Cudlow and Kramer, Cerebin and Eleven, right? So <laughs> this has been, this has really been great. And I, I want to be respectful of your time. Khalil, wrap us up. Give me, give me a summary of what your takeaway has been listening to this conversation. Well, uh, Dan has been so helpful, um, so much to take away from here. And I think in general, even though there is uncertainty, even though there are new economic challenges and we're in uncharted territory as an industry, I think really all of your advice, Dan, is pretty sound for anyone at any time yeah. and any economic standpoint is to be, you know, thinking constantly about the state of your business, about the state of your industry, the economy, your employees, uh, to make sound decisions and not just use a gut feeling, but really make sure that you are looking at data, looking at the information ahead of you and making a best case judgment when you can. Um, I think really for the most part, you sounded pretty optimistic that there is a stability coming. And I think that's something that is really important because if you start getting into doomsday, then you don't really want to focus on planning. We're not having getting into in 2030, apparently. <laughs> gonna be yeah, with this huge Great Depression we might be facing. But when you do have that uh, you know, stability coming mentality and there is opportunity ahead, I think that's whenever you can really start to make good plans and get excited about your plans to actually execute on them. Um, I would say that with your, you know, planning, uh, for the future and thinking about all the, the pressure that you have on costs, the pressure that you have with your, your, the labor market and 
you know, customers keeping their, their budgets flat, that it really means a decline in their budget. I think with all those things considered, you can still look forward to an optimistic future in the industry and that there are people that are going to be wanting to, to attend face-to-face -face events and uh, things will move forward as such. So really, really great stuff, Dan. I think that uh, this has been a fantastic episode for our listeners. Where can people get in touch with you if they have questions or uh, just want to connect further? Um, so um, I'll give, well, I don't know what's the We can stalk, can we stalk you on LinkedIn? Can they reach you via your LinkedIn They email? sure can, yep. You know, that's probably the best spot. That's that's okay. LinkedIn, perfect. We'll we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, there's also there's that website he's featured on sexyfinanceguys.com forward slash Milwaukee. I think you can you can find Dan there. So now, um, yeah, I will. I, a big thank you. Um, I always, I've enjoyed working with you for Dan is. I don't know if I mentioned he's the current uh, and outgoing president of the Experiential Designer Producer Association been a phenomenal leader. Uh, I'm the guy that gets to surf in his wake the next 24 months when I take the gavel next month. But um, um, thankfully, um, I have Dan's cell number, so I can still uh, call 1-800-DAN um, when I get to those tricky points. Experience builders, uh, listeners I know are, are, are grateful for this topic and for, um, for you joining us today. So, um, Really, thanks, Dan. Well, thank you. It's been fun. I, I get excited talking about this stuff. You know, um, I, oh, yeah. I felt I've thrown out more quotes than I usually do. And my usual go-to is, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And so you got to figure out where you're going and how to get there. But um, I, I just, I have fun talking about this. And um, Chris, if there's, you know, if you guys want to talk about this, more about this in the future, please give me awesome. a call. Thanks for not ending on a Yogi Bear quote. You know, if you come to a fork in the road, pick it up. Right? So that's the, that's the yogi line. Wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Experience Builders podcast. Check out our website in the show notes or visit crewxp.com to learn more.